0: And welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. This week's guest is Jordan Lev, who came on to talk about Fish's performance of Limb by Limb at the Chaffetz Arena in St. Louis on August 28, 2012. From the host's perspective, there are, generally speaking, two types of jams or two types of shows that most guests pick for attendance bias. Either a high-profile show that I've been to or heard, or a Diamond in the Rough show or jam that I otherwise probably would have lived the rest of my fish-listening life and never would have come across. Today's episode features the latter. Most versions of Limb by Limb feature the incredible drum work of John Fishman, great call-and-response vocals from Trey and Page, and Mike holding down the rhythm on bass. This version still features all of that— But it also has a surprise right in the middle that is unlike most other versions I've ever heard. But this podcast is not about me. It's about the guest. Jordan tells about his experiences traveling all around the country to see Fish, the significance of St. Louis in his personal life, and why he was so surprised to see Chaffetz Arena pop up on Fish's 2012 Summer Tour Dates. So get on your bicycle, give a shout out to Mr. Miner, and get your most analytical brain in gear as we discuss Fish's performance of Limb by Limb from August 28th, 2012 at the Chaffetz Arena in St. Louis. Jordan, thanks for being here tonight. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. The jam that you picked to discuss today, you pointed out a real diamond in the rough, a version of limb by limb that I hadn't heard before, that I hadn't been aware of. And I just listened to it again before we started this recording. And it, it should have a permanent space in pretty much anyone's rotation, whatever kind of fish fan they are. It's fabulous. And that limb by limb is from August 28th, 2012. At I recently learned... Chaffetz Arena is how you pronounce the venue in St. Louis. Uh, can't wait to talk to you about it. And before we get into the jam, let's get to know you a little bit. So you grew up in northern New Jersey. Is that right?
1: Yep. New York City suburb. Kind of like you, but on the opposite side. of Yeah, it, so. I was
0: I was thinking about that. When you when you use the phrase New York suburb, to me, all that means is Long Island and New Jersey is almost another country. <laughs> to me, you know, it's like yeah. Canada, uh, but you know, it's the same deal. Take a train yep, and you're there. Exactly. How did you get into fish in New Jersey?
1: Uh, so I actually didn't get into them in New Jersey. I, okay. I didn't get into fish until I was in college. And so I went to Skidmore college in upstate New York uh, in the early nineties, early to mid nineties. And that was really kind of a hotbed of fish fandom, I'd say. I mean, as many new Englands, you know, upstate schools where, you know, for example, uh, Scott Bernstein, Scotty B mm-hmm. uh, was, went to that school the same year I was, he was, you know, say an acquaintance, I guess. And there's just all, it was just in the air <laughs> there. So I think unlike you know, I hear a lot of people on your podcast and they have this like aha moment or something, or they're at a show and it, like finally hits them. For me, it was much more gradual. It was like a process of osmosis. <laughs> You know, my like freshman year roommate, he just played like Dave Matthews band and fish all the time. And it just slowly got in my head. Fish kept Dave Matthews kind of fell off that train pretty early. But
0: yeah, yeah. And, you know, a bunch of people on here have brought up Dave Matthews is kind of their, for lack of a better phrase, their gateway band that got them into fish once they, you know, they, they wanted something a little more serious when it came to improvisation or musical dexterity. But I got to say, God bless Dave Matthews. He found something that works for him or the band did. And he's, you know, he's great at what he does and, Absolutely. you know, whether or not you fell off or if you're still on with him, you know, he doesn't need us. <laughs> he's got yeah. his own thing going well, on. I mean, he, and it's I, not bad. His music's still pretty damn good. Actually. I haven't
1: listened in a while. I mean, nothing but respect to, you know, for he's obviously a, the whole band is incredibly talented musicians. Just You know, you, go through different phases of life and uh, some things are are your cup of tea and then they're not.
0: And when I asked you before we hit record here, if there's anything you'd like to promote or share, you said there's nothing about you personally that you have to promote, but you mentioned a, is it a newsletter, a blog? Tell us a little bit about what you were thinking.
1: Yeah, I just want to s- spread the word. Um, so there's a, a guy, Rob Mitchum is his name. He's a, a you know, music critic. Um, and he writes about lots of bands um, but also about fish and he has a it's like an email newsletter it's free and you know he writes something more most recently he's been writing about an essay about whatever show happened 25 years ago so currently he's in uh the fall tour of 96 um so you know there's a lot about how it's (laughs) not the most exciting tour but it's it's just great. It's it's you know so much of what I see online about fish is this very um, I don't want to say shallow, but um, it's like rah rah rah, like cheerily, like that was great, that was awesome, or like that sucks. You know, it's very like binary. Let's get into the spirit of it. It's great, you know, to, to get excited, but it's not always the most um, cerebral uh, take on things. And Rob Mitchum just writes like really interesting things uh, that other people aren't you know haven't talked about necessarily so i feel like if you're into like the analysis of fish and you know you're okay hearing some intelligent takes on maybe where they falter at times you know um, but also intelligent takes on where they just really excel uh, i just can't recommend it highly enough and i I don't see people talking about it online which is as much as i think they should which is crazy to me because it's just it's just so good. So anyway, I, I have no relation to this person. I, I just love reading his stuff. Um, but if you go to fishcrit.substack.com, that's where you can sign up for his free newsletter and go through the back archives. If you're interested, I'd recommend reading about fall 94. You know, I feel like he had a lot of really great takes on that, you know, that incredible period of growth. But yeah, it's a uh, fishcrit, P-H-I-S-H-C-R-I-T.substack.com
0: all right great and when today's show airs i'll put a link to it in the uh, in the show notes so anyone listening now if you're into some cerebral breakdown of fish from 25 or 25 plus years ago just look at the show notes today click on it whether it's just a uh, whatever link i could find or connection you got my interest so hopefully people listening would be uh, interested as well so we got to know you a little bit just you know surface level background Let's hear more about you as a fan. We'll get into the attendance bias lightning round. You ready? I'm ready. Attendance bias lightning round. So Jordan, when was your first fish show?
1: My first fish show was December 28th, 1996. So almost 25 years ago um, at the Philly spectrum. And is that the
0: show that they played champagne supernova?
1: Yeah, I think that was the 29th. It okay. was the second show I saw. Okay. Um yeah, and it was uh it was it was fun. It was great. What are some like of your memories s- from your first show. Um the thing that stands out the most is one of these uh, coincidences that happens all the time at fish shows but is kind of unusual otherwise. I wound up sitting next to a classmate of my, someone who went to my school like directly next to him. Both nights, even though we had no had not coordinated anything. <laughs> it was like the weirdest coincidence. I, I figure we must have like sent in our fish, to, you know, tickets by mail at the same post office on the same day. So maybe it arrived at you know the ticket office like in the same stack or something, but it was just it was so weird. But I, I just remember feeling like, ah, yes, like I this is like where I belonged, you know. And like I said earlier, I I didn't have this like single breakthrough aha moment like at a show. It it had slowly over the last year. You know, I just gotten so into it. Um I felt like by the time I went to the show, like I was ready. You know, I kind of knew what I was getting into, at least musically.
0: What's your favorite fish song today? Uh
1: today? I mean I I actually have a specific answer. It's probably, it's <laughs> my favorite course. song today. It is my which is Sand. It's just ever since um, probably since I came back in 3.0, it's, it's been, I just love the groove of it. It's, it's kind of like the least dorky fish song in a way. Uh, you know, I love the dorky fish songs too, but there's something about sand. I just, I don't know. It's got like kind of a dark side to it, which I really like. And It seems like you, you
0: move toward the cerebral side of fish a bit.
1: Yeah, I would say so. You know, I'm a Virgo. I think I I tend to be analytical (laughs) about things. Um, So one of the many things, I mean, that's what's great about fish and, you listening to your podcast, you know, you hear so many different people who all come at it from a different angle. Like there's so much to love about it, even if, you know, regardless of what, you know, what angle it is you're into, which is so great.
0: What's your favorite indoor venue and what's your favorite outdoor venue?
1: Yeah, so I don't know that I have a favorite indoor venue. Um, I think the because so much of the of my fish going experience was in the mid to late '90s, which was you know twenty years ago now. I don't know that I remember the specific details of any one venue over another, but I will just say the generic like mid size hockey arena <laughs> is my favorite indoor venue uh and you know if I had to pick one I'll just say Nassau Coliseum because of the caliber of shows that you know I was fortunate enough to catch the island tour there and the February 28 2003 show there um so yeah just uh I know it's uh the facilities are not always great but the vibe is that just that just feels like exactly what fish is to me
0: I hear what you're saying like Hampton Coliseum or the North Charleston Coliseum these like minor league hockey arenas the Nick in Albany yeah they're love they're lovely plays they they feel intimate but they're big enough for like 15,000 fans at the same time
1: yeah funny uh, one quick story about the Hampton Coliseum I know you've talked about how you missed the island tour because you had like a school My my drama
0: performance of Tommy, yes. Yeah. So
1: I was supposed to go to the '98 Hampton shows, the ones that were later, you know, released on Hampton Comes Alive, and it was like the perfect setup. I had gotten ticket tickets by mail ahead of time. I had like friends who were going. I had a ride in their car. They had a hotel. It was like perfect. And then I had this like one credit college class of it was like a guitar lesson. And they had scheduled our, like, classical guitar concert on one of those nights. Oh, no. And, you know, it's in hindsight, you, you think back on your life and, like, what matters and what didn't. And you're like, I probably should have just, like, got taken an F in that class and gone to the shows. <laughs> but at the time, you know, felt like I needed to do that. So.
0: And what about your favorite outdoor venue?
1: Uh, by far, the Gorge. I mean, this one's a no-brainer. Yeah. I, I used to live, uh, I lived in Seattle and then Portland. And so I saw A ton of shows at the Gorge, but Fish and lots of you know, seen the police and Radiohead and uh, the Who out you know out there. Yeah, and the Gorge is just so incredible. Every band I've seen there, like they just are always so obviously inspired by the surroundings. Like it's always a great show. Like bands just seem to put on their A game at that venue, and you know, Fish is no different. Uh, And it's just it's just so beautiful there. So. It's, it's worth the schlep
0: uh, are there any songs that you're chasing and songs that are chasing you that you just can't get away from and you seem to hear it at every show
1: yeah i don't I don't think there's a song I'm chasing I, I'm more about chasing like a overall set that kind of flows well or you know a, like a good jam kind of thing uh, but I'd say I've, I've been when I hear the the slow llama that's that they've been playing from time to time for the last few years, I love that. Uh, that would be really cool to see. Um, it
0: is joyous. It's, and it's, al- it's always a surprise. You know, I've seen, I think two of them by now, I think once was at the man in Philly and once was, I think they played it this past summer in Atlantic city. And so. it's, it's not uncommon anymore, but it still always feels like a surprise when they start it, And it really is fun. Right. Cause they still play
1: the fast one also. Yeah, exactly. It's- Um, I will say for a while, I, I was, uh, I know you, you had a show recently you did about Radiohead. Mm -hmm. Um, I used, you know, as a Fish fan, and then you are into these other bands, you always think it would be such a dream if, you know, this band covered that band. Yeah, I always, I I feel like for a while I was was like, man, I don't think this would ever in a million years happen, but it would be so cool if Fish played a Radiohead song. And then of course they did at the Baker's Dozen and it, kind of came across as a flop I guess like well it seems like the general sentiment is that people didn't like it but I thought it was amazing
0: because I think it's like when they played Purple Rain or something you know it's like you got to take it for what it is you know it's it's because I was there I was at that show and I Uh, had a freak out in a positive way it was like when they played Sparks on uh, December 30th 2016 and I'm you know the biggest Who fan and it's like my favorite band playing one of my other favorite bands and whether it's Fishman singing or it's just kind of a rote performance, either way, it's, you got to take it for the happiness that it brings. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you get, if you get too deep into Fishman singing anything, you know, think, singing Tom York's vocals, you've already missed the point. You're going <laughs> a little too deep.
1: Yeah. Well, one one aspect of it though, that I didn't, I don't know that people really got or I don't know maybe they did, but like they if you are are into Radiohead and listen to their bootlegs, like their concerts, they play that song uh everything in its right place, very differently at concerts than it was on the album. and they do this thing where they like loop the vocals and they kind of jam with this like vocal delay thing, and like Fish did that. For their cover yeah. of it. I was like, this is amazing. Like they're not just covering this out al- this song from this amazing album. They're covering the live performance of this song from Radiohead. I, I figured the- I don't know. I thought maybe fish fans of all people would appreciate that aspect of it more.
0: <laughs> what's your fa- yeah, what's your uh, what's your favorite fish year? If you could only pick one year of fish to listen to for the rest of your life, which year would that be? Uh, I mean if
1: if I only could listen to one for the rest of my life, probably 97. 98 was my favorite year for like being at shows just because I, you know, was like on tour that year. I saw more shows that year than any other. Um, and if I had like a hot take favorite year, I want to say 2013 because I just love the jams that that took place and and some of the shows. I mean, that was October 20th. At Hampton Coliseum, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's right. right. Is, is one of my favorite. I mean, the second set of that is just young know, chef's kiss.
0: <laughs> well, um, what's your favorite post show snack?
1: Grilled cheese. Yeah, uh,
0: classic. Yeah, yeah. You and I are. I have a feeling you and I are a lot alike in terms of <laughs> our comforts and our fandom and what we like. That's. I'm the same way. I go for the classics, tried and true. Yeah. And finally, what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show? So, uh, yeah, the weirdest thing
1: that like happened. Uh, th- so this was in uh, fall of 99 at the in Albany. I don't know if it was still called the Knickerbocker or if it was like the Pepsi Arena then maybe. It's always
0: the Knickerbocker. Yeah, the it's Nick. always
1: the Knickerbocker. Uh, yeah. So I was going to that show with, with some friends and we, for whatever reason, we got there late. And like we heard them, the band starting to play the first song as we were like walking into the venue. So we we're like, all right, like we don't even know where our seats are. Like we're not even going to bother looking for them. Let's just walk straight ahead into the first, you know, doorway we find. And we start walking in and down the stairs and we just look for a couple of empty seats that are next to the aisle. And we just go in, right? You know, we just wanted to get to like the first place we could. So we, you know, weren't, we're, we're not missing any more of the music. And so we're there and we're like, you know, dancing. And like a few minutes later, we like turn to our left and sitting right next to us is like our other friend, like my roommate and when like my best friend who had gone to the show separately. And again, like we had no coordination of this at all. We we had no idea like where anyone was sitting and we had no plans to meet up. And we just randomly out of this, you know, 17,000 person arena, like wound up taking the first seats we saw and like there we were right next to our best friends.
0: (laughs) Only at Fish. Yeah. When was this show played? So today's jam was in August of 2012. Looking back at the summer of 2012, the tour began on June 7th with two shows at the Worcester Centrum, which is unusual in the first place to have an indoor Northeast show in the summer. Uh moved up to a headlining slot at Bonnaroo, Up and down the East Coast from Atlantic City to Virginia, across the Midwest to hit a lot of fan-favorite venues, Deer Creek, Alpine Valley, and then back East for two shows at Jones Beach. Those were the only shows I saw that summer. And they ended the first leg with a big blowout weekend at Saratoga. It's back. And then they started their second leg, which crossed the nation in August to the West Coast, featuring shows in Long Beach, California, Uh, San Francisco, then they bounced back between the Midwest and the East Coast and settled at Dix. When I was looking this over, what a crazy itinerary. It's like you can't pin them down and it's basically impossible to follow them from venue to venue for a full tour. What do you remember about the summer of 2012?
1: In 2012, and this is a, a big reason I chose this show and this jam for attendance bias, 2012 was a very like transitional time in my life and like a really exciting one. I had just moved to St. Louis. So I, I was living in Portland, Oregon for a little over 10 years. And know, life had just gotten a little stale. And I had some you know, some really good friends who had just moved to St. Louis because they have family here. And I just kind of on a whim, I was like, hey, like, well, you know, maybe I'll move there too. And I, you know, I played music with my friends. So it's like we could start a band. So I did it. And so, yeah, I was in this new city. I was playing music a lot. Um, you know getting to meeting a ton of new people and i i'd started i met and started dating my now wife um that which is kind of what's kept me here all these years you know this was almost 10 years ago now um and yeah just kind of experiencing a new place and new people and um, playing a lot of music going to a lot of shows i had assumed Deer creek was the closest they were going to get to st louis but lo and behold there's a show at this relatively unknown you know small school basketball arena the chaffetz arena which happened to be in my neighborhood that i lived in i lived in an apartment at the time it was just mind-blowing to me like i i wound up riding my bicycle to this show
0: yeah i've driven that's fun yeah
1: it's like you drive you know i've driven up to limestone for the festivals up there down to cyprus Uh, I've driven across the country East and West for, you know, summer tours down to like Indio for festival eight for, you know, living in the Pacific Northwest, like you go to such great lengths. And then it's like, Oh wow. It's unimaginable that you can like not be in a car (laughs) to get to a fish. Yeah. That's, that's kind of where I was, you know, with my life and geographically. And I I just also was at a place in my fish fandom. It was really like kind of a new like peak uh, fandom, you know, as you picked up on earlier i can be like pretty analytical and um i kind of fallen off the off the train but you know back in the 2.0 era um and well when fish came back you know in 2009 i started to get back into it again and you know it was slow going for a while it you know it was super exciting to have them back and listen to shows I mean, going to shows you know was always fun but the kind of took them a couple years to get to that point where they were really firing on all cylinders and you know kind of getting all more consistent with the like special moments and the flowing set lists and the jams i mean there was this there were all these blogs that were going on the the and mr miner's fish thoughts i just want to throw that out there i sure. was obsessed with that i loved it so much um he was just so passionate about it you know just and he would like give these detailed reviews of shows and i think he was a little uh of the variety of you know, hyperbolic, let's say, but I just loved it. You know, I I almost looked forward to his reviews of the shows as much as like listening to the shows (laughs) themselves. So that, you know, that I I feel like in 2012, you know, all this was going on. And also I was kind of diving into the, let's say the analytical side of things in a way I never had before. Um, So that, that's kind of the headspace I was in at this time.
0: Well, you're not alone because I would agree with you that Well, I mean, I think it's pretty factual to say that it took them a couple of years to really dive back into the flow that you mentioned, that they became Fish, who we all know and love. But 2012, you could argue that summer tour was when it really settled in. I don't have too many sharp memories of that tour overall since I only saw the two shows at Jones Beach. But what I do remember were fan reviews, like you mentioned, not just from Mr. Minor, but just general forums and maybe fish.net where people were effusive uh, of almost every show, including Long Beach, uh, the SPAC weekend and Dicks. And one journalist who is accessible on Twitter, Brian Bovosa, I, I really respect his opinion. He wrote for Glide magazine at the time. He wrote about the first leg quote this past weekend at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center I can confidently say that Fish concluded their best tour, or at least the first leg of one, since at least 2003. Coming out of the gates with a top effort at Worcester Centrum a month earlier, the band did not let up at all. Throughout the next 18 shows, combining some elements that make Fish, Fish, the fearsome foursome of Trey Anastasio, blah, 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 crafted a riveting frame of music that certainly had fans abuzz about the possibilities for the remainder of the year. And without reading his whole article, he also cited bust outs, purposeful jamming, their playfulness and humor that became very common in 2012. I mostly remember that, and it might have been Scott Bernstein, who you name checked earlier. uh, There was like a running song count as the band broke their their own record for the most distinct songs played during a single year. I remember, I think it was him.
1: Yeah, uh, it was him or Scott, Scott Marks.
0: Marks. Yeah, it was one or the other. We're just bursting at the seams. It was like 257, I think, was the number something around Sounds there. Sounds about right. Yeah. And they, they were just bursting with song counts because, you yeah. know, and they because they only toured about half the time that they would tour in 1.0, you know, if, if not even less than half. So it right. really Which felt
1: even more exciting. Impressive in a way. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. That's yeah. what I mean. So to wrap up this segment of the context of 2012, why did you pick this limb by limb? So
1: I, you know, this is a bias. So I was at this show and I remember it very vividly. It was it was such a great show. Um, I would just say this is kind of a highlight jam from that show. Um, you know, it's it's like you said earlier, it's kind of a I feel like it's kind of a hidden gem. Um now the the thing is that this this show took place the week before dicks 2012 and as we all know i mean that you know the fuck your face show and and even i mean the two shows after that uh were just so i mean that was like the first time i feel like you could say ah something happened in 3.0 that was like (laughs) never happened in 1.0 you know not that it was like better then, but you could finally say like without having to you know, I feel like in, in '09 and, and 2010, 2011, you're like, well, you know, like they're, it's good. I don't know you felt like you had to almost make excuses for it. it well, you it, have to qualify. Yeah. I think a lot qualify of us it.
0: felt like, yeah, we have to qualify it. It's great for 3.0, exactly, like as yeah, if exactly. you need you need some, like you said, you have to um, justify your opinion somehow and not just let it be.
1: Right, but the the fuck your face show, no justification needed. The like the light from the next night, or even the it's like Golden Age and Prince Caspian before it. I mean, just three ridiculous jams, and then the the third night, the second set. Of, you know, I I said Sand is my favorite song. That's probably my favorite Sand of all time. Is that third? So anyway, this is like in the shadow of that, but I really feel like it's a great. The show has so much energy, and it, it has so much. Like you can feel them building up to to what would just be bursting. You know, yeah, at, at Dicks.
0: So the Limb by Limb is played after Walk Away, and you could hear it in the recording, at least the one that I listened to on fish.in, which is outstanding. The guitar tone that Trey is playing to open Limb by Limb is very brash. It's coming straight from Walk Away, and it sounds like that heavy 70s guitar, like hard rock guitar. And he plays that opening riff. But once the drums and the proper song begins, he almost completely backs away. It's like immediate dynamics from beginning to one minute in. It's like a completely different guitar shift. out of stone
1: I think it must have been a mistake, because if you listen to the it's not a direct segue from Walk Away. They right. They actually stop. So I think he just like forgot to hit the switch on his yeah. pedal or something.
0: And then about two minutes in, the uh, Mike's backing vocals, although not really backing, they're just part of the song. They're up front and he didn't quite have it. The part was limb by limb by limb lim by limb by limb. And he speeds up in the middle. I don't know if they still do that. But if they don't, this recording, this performance might be a reason why they don't. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's pretty tricky.
0: And then a little bit later, there's like great interplay between Trey and Paige. My favorite part, though, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, is about around four and a half minutes. Things take a very strange turn. It could be like a Halloween movie score where almost everything drops out and Trey is playing this Creepy horror movie effect where he's drawing out weirdness in Fishman, but they're not even full guitar notes, these like screeches and these like howls in the background. That when this happened, my ears really perked up, and I'm like, All right, they can go anywhere, and I am in no matter what it is.
1: Yeah, I, it's interesting. I, I, I think I have a different take on that because I, I want to call out that uh, it, maybe about a minute before that, when the normal, like the singing part of the song ends. And usually Trey just comes out with like a ripping guitar, you know, classic rock guitar solo or classic Trey guitar solo. You can kind of hear in this one that he kind of almost starts to do that, but steps back pretty soon and plays kind of softer notes or more like shorter, like pizzicato notes. Um, it, it could really, it really seems like he was, almost got ahead of himself. He's like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't want this song to go right there or end this quickly. So he kind of opens it up and, le- and plays in a way that leaves more space for Mike and Paige to come in. Um, now I feel like he did that, but then for like the next minute or so, up until the point you're talking about, they're kind of, no one is actually taking the lead it's like he left this space and they're all kind of circling around each other and not actually, they hadn't found it yet, but, but they kept it open. They're like, we're going to find it. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, let's keep doing this. Yeah. And then I don't know if this is the the tone or the sound you were talking about, but there's definitely a whale, a couple of whales. Yeah. it's
0: uh, we, That is the tone. That's the part I'm definitely talking about.
1: Yeah. And that, I mean, that's another thing. People online anyway, I mean, you know, people made so many jokes about the whale call sound in 2010. I'm actually a fan, you know, I I think, I think I heard Trey talk about this in an interview somewhere, but he was almost like, if you play music, there's in Western music, there's just the, so many notes, was it like 12 notes in the scale? It's like, why are there only 12 notes in the scale? It's like this total somewhat arbitrary Distinction. And I think it was like Miles Davis, maybe, was played around a lot with like notes in between the notes. And I think I heard, I remember Trey like saying he was kind of inspired by that and was trying to figure out a way to play like notes in between the notes. And that's what I think the whale call was. I don't know, maybe again, being overly analytical and from a musician's point of view, I always thought it was really cool. Um, I and think it's, it's so, even, I think it's cool here.
0: So. Yeah, well I mean it's it's not even I'm thinking 2010 is what I associate with that phrase the whale call as it applies to fish and I don't even think it's the effect in itself I just don't know if it always fits cuz Trey you know when he gets a new toy when he gets a new sound like my 7 year old nephew when he gets a new toy he wants to bring it everywhere he wants to bring it to the table when you go out to dinner he wants to show it to his uncle when he comes over for dinner like everything is about that toy and i think he it's a you know it's been it's a tale as old as fish has existed he always wants to do it and i think that's what happened but then when you give it up you learn how to use it and i think that's what happened here in this part of limb by limb And it really comes to play about six minutes and 40 seconds in where there's like an intersection where almost everything stops. And Trey plays this, I don't know, the first thing that came to my mind was shine on you, crazy diamond. It's this four note I wouldn't even call it a progression. I I called it, it was a four note call. Like he was putting it out there almost like a doorbell and waiting to see who else was going to come answer like I, yeah. I put on shine on you crazy diamond or close encounters of the third kind
1: Yeah, I, I could see that. Um, I, I hadn't thought of of those specific melodies, but I do have the note at that exact time. It's almost <laughs> like he's saying, "Come on, guys, let's like let's do yeah. this." You know, again, I feel like they've been circling around each other. But to their credit, again, I, I love when they're patient and take their time. Like we know it's there. We just we just got to find. I so much prefer that than just ah whatever. I'm gonna like rip a solo and, and we're done.
0: Yeah, um, it's like making yeah, Bradley come out. You got you got to yeah. draw it out. <laughs> Yeah. And then by seven and a half minutes, just a minute after that four note call, we're in full type two. Like limb by limb is gone.
1: Yeah, it's really a slow build. And, uh, you know, again, you know, they're, they're kind of in this holding pattern for a little bit. And, he- and here they are finally, like things just locked in place. It seems like, or it had locked in place a couple minutes prior. And, you know, Trey hangs back for so long to give space, for the I presume you know to give space for the <laughs> for the other musicians and eight eight minutes, eight minutes, 15 seconds or so Trey's like, all right like we're locked in like I'm gonna take the lead again and yeah it's it's great.
0: About a minute later around close to 10 minutes, I guess it is, uh, there's this ripping rhythm guitar and my note reads the sort of jam I'm always hoping for. Yeah,
1: it's great. So it's like back, I think they were kind of playing in a minor key for a while there. Yeah. And like back to a major key. It's like finally starting to hear like the climax happening. Um, but Trey is still playing rhythm guitar, like you said, which again, as you know, someone, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of the, just going to the guitar solo all the time. It, it gets boring to me after a while. Same. I mean, I love it when it's, you know, just all of the skills and experiences over the years that they've developed. It's like ah we can still start to reach that peak or that climax in in other ways besides just a ripping tray solo. So yeah, I love this. This kind of he's he's playing rhythm guitar but they're still giving that feeling to it of building up, building up towards the peak.
0: And there's your 1997, right? I mean, Trey for a lot of 97 was on rhythm guitar. It was laid back and funky. This is not this is straight rock and roll rhythm guitar. But, you know, it's it's something that you look back and maybe that's where he learned that rhythm can be part of the power and he doesn't always have to be the one up front. And it's on the recording. I mean, Trey's rhythm guitar is very loud and aggressive. But it's if you listen a little harder, Paige is adding a ton with his piano, almost like a call and response with the rest of the band.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Paige is is doing his Paige thing. And, um, you know, again, Trey, you know, I feel like leaving left that room in the pocket or whatever you call it, you know, left that musical space for him to to do that.
0: And toward the end, around 11 minutes or 12 minutes, really, it was 11 minutes and 40 seconds that I wrote this, that we've reached a peak. There is nothing better than this. This is the absolute best shredding. I, I, I couldn't get over it. I was really effusive. You talk about Mr. Minor and hyperbole. I'm, I'm in his shoes at 11 <laughs> minutes and 40 seconds. I can back that guy for for this limb by limb.
1: Agreed. Yeah, and this is where finally the, you know, the rock the rock star the rock god solo comes out it's like you know what you've earned this like, yeah busy. like <laughs> we, back we've all been enough. on a journey and like you know th- this perfect timing and yeah just the, the flow of this jam for for the last i don't know was it six or seven minutes is just yep perfect
0: when we were talking earlier about qualifying certain jams and saying it's good in parentheses for 3.0, you know, that kind of a thing. The last thing I thought at the very end of this limb by limb was when people rip on 3.0 as like never being as good as 1.0, like it's all right, this is good for now. I wish there was like a time travel machine for people to hear this in 1993. Like as if you could go back to when the band was like, in their early or mid twenties and play, whether it's for them or their fans who we were also in our twenties or some of us. And if you said, if fish was still playing like this in 20 years or if fish was playing like this in 20 years, would you still go see them and then play this version of limb by limb? I guarantee almost everyone would say yes. Oh yeah, no doubt. And then by the end, there's a perfect sudden change back to limb by limb as if, it was all a dream
1: <laughs> yeah well it's like where do you go you know you you uh you hit the peak the climax and you know it's you there's not you know it's that's why it's so great that they built up to it over so much time in my opinion you yeah. know took their time with it um can't really go anywhere so it's nice that they wrap well, they, up the song and- i think that people complain also back then complain incessantly about the ripcording um and which you know i i, I get it too that was annoying sometimes to you think a jam's going somewhere and it just ends. But if they, it's almost like they ripcord a jam by ending the song. They do that a lot more recently. I've noticed the last few years, like they've gotten really into like coming back to the end of the song after jamming just yes. to wrap it up. I feel like yeah. it's like, oh, okay, I can live with that. It's you know, a sense of uh, like a sense of closure, get yeah, closure. Yeah.
0: Well, they went to Julius after this one. So not yeah, a bad consolation yeah. prize. I'll take it. And this yeah. limb by limb left nothing behind.
1: No, I mean this whole set. The I mean the we didn't really get into it, but I mean leading up to this, there there's this uninterrupted segment. It's Chalk Dust. Frankie says, "Undermine, sand, Walk Away." I mean, it's just it's just like relentless. It, it, there was just nonstop energy, um, and I mean this is really. I would say this is in the classic like. Early 3.0 template, you kind of have the third quarter is like the highlight of of most shows. Yeah, I would um, agree. Yeah, I mean, this was, I'd say the Julius, like, if you know, Julius is like the low point, <laughs> if Julius, <is> the low <laughs> yeah, right. point in energy of a show, like, you know, it's a good show. Right?
0: So, Jordan Lev, thanks so much for being here to talk about this version of Limb by Limb from August 28th, 2012 at J. Fitz Arena in St. Louis. And before we get out of here, can you repeat again the name of uh, of the author of that newsletter and how to find it that you were so eager to share earlier?
1: Sure. It's, his name is Rob Mitchum, and his email newsletter is at
0: fishcrit.substack.com. Fishcrit, and right. thank you, Jordan. Appreciate you being here today, and I'm excited to talk to you again, I'm sure, real soon.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Love the podcasts. Appreciate everything you you do and all the great conversations that you uh, spark with people.
0: And that's it for my interview with Jordan Lev. And now it's time for the attendance bias fact check. Attendance bias fact check. Jordan's first show was December 28th, 1996 at what was then called the core state spectrum in Philadelphia. I was wrong when I cited the band playing Champagne Supernova by Oasis, and Jordan was right that they played it the next night at the same venue in the middle of a crazy sequence. That sequence in set two of December 29th, 96 goes, you enjoy myself into a rotation jam into 16 candles back into you enjoy myself into Harpua, then Champagne Supernova and closes out with Harpua. I remember trading for that tape specifically to hear that sequence, and I was sorely disappointed at the quality of the recording I got on that tape. But luckily, we now live in the 21st century, when Fish.in has a very decent-sounding recording of both the 28th and the 29th. The performance of the Oasis Classic is right in line with the band's playing of Collective Soul's Shine a year earlier with Tom Marshall on vocals, and what I guess was a few run-throughs backstage ahead of the debut. It was good for a quasi-serious, quasi-funny joke. Slow Llama has been performed six times so far, and I've seen it three times, not twice. The three times I've seen it were at The Man in Philadelphia in 2015 after its debut, at Merriweather Post in 2018, and in Atlantic City in 2021. Fish's cover of Radiohead's Everything in Its Right Place was played, as Jordan mentioned, at the Baker's Dozen on August 4th, 2017 during the Lemon Poppy Seed Night. Jordan and I talked a little bit about the seriousness or the intent with which the band played the song. To help shed some light on it, I found an interview with Trey in the New York Times from writer Jesse Jarnow about Fish's cover of the song. Trey said, Obviously, we love them, meaning Radiohead. Who doesn't? We admire them. But we kind of wondered, like, if you weren't a fan of Fish, would you understand the glory of the John Fishman vocal? Like, if Tom York and those guys hear that... York's got such a great voice, and it's kind of hard to sing. And the other people in Fish could have sang it. But having Fish sing it was great. He's Fish. We love him. But he has to have some character to his voice. How do you explain to outsiders that the guy who sang it, well, he's like the heart and soul of the band? He's not normally the singer. A few years ago, he didn't think of himself as a singer at all. But it's so perfect. We hope that if they do hear it, they know it was done with absolute love and honor. When talking about Fish in 2013, Jordan mentions the show on October 20th, 2013 at the Hampton Coliseum. That show was the third of three nights at the fabled venue and featured the famous Taking Care of Business segue out of Piper in the second set, along with several other highlights. I cited the blog Tackles and Lines as a great source for getting the vibe of summer 2012, but I couldn't find the name of the author on the blog itself, Just by happenstance, I learned that the author of the article I used was none other than Brian Brinkman of Osiris Media and a friend of this podcast. Brian recently appeared on this show and chose to tell his story about Ghost from December 30th, 2016. Check out that episode. It's a good one. And that's it for the fact check. Again, I'd like to thank Jordan Lev for joining me today, Fish.net for providing all the information we needed for that fact check, and Fish.in for a great recording of this track of Limb by Limb. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of it on your favorite podcast app. Also, feel free to reach out to me at any time on social media. I am most active on Instagram and Twitter. Say hello and I'll send you a free sticker. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias.